Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. One of the most common questions I receive in my line of work is, what do you believe about, and then fill in the blank. And I've been asked that question about all sorts of things. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the Trinity? What do you believe about the Bible? Uh, What do you believe about angels? Are they real and literal beings? Or uh, Satan, is Satan a literal being? What about atonement theories? What about the church? I even was asked one time when someone found out I was a pastor, the first question they asked was, who did you vote for in the last election? Because apparently that too is important. And many of you who listen regularly, or maybe if you're a part of Denver Community Church, you know that I don't actually state what I believe. Uh, I I don't get up on a Sunday, or I don't get on the podcast and say, this is what I think you should believe because this is what I believe. And um, when somebody says to me, what is it that you believe about? My response is always, why does that matter? Why does it matter to you what I believe? And I don't do this like to be, you know, dodgy or sly. Rather, I do it because I want all of us to dive deeply into what we believe. I want you to consider and contemplate and wrestle and do the inner work to understand what is it that you believe. And, and for me, I think if we don't do that, we miss the joy of doing the inner work and discovering things for ourselves and wrestling with what it is that we believe. And so with that said, I just want to say that today, however, um, that's going to change, sort of. Um, I'm not going to respond to the questions of what I believe about this or that particular category of theology. And honestly, I've always found that like arguing over smaller and finer points of theology and the minutia, I've always found that um, not very interesting. And I know some people love it, and I think it's needed, um, but, but I, I, that's not what I'm going to do today. Rather, what I want to do is reflect on the sum total of how I view the world, life, the universe, um, to reflect on how I believe things actually work fundamentally in their core. So this is certainly like not a confession or a statement of belief or a like doctrinal statement um, in the tradition of the church, but because it's actually far, far simpler than that. Uh, and the episode actually began with a conversation that I had with one of my closest friends. And in the midst of the conversation, he even said to me, "You need to uh, put the, you need to do a podcast on this. You need to talk about this at some point so other people can hear what you're saying." And um, And that's where I'm going to begin, is I'm going to talk about mine and his conversation, offer some thoughts. I want to reflect on my favorite story, which actually came up in that conversation, and some things that I'm learning, and some things that I've picked up along the way, and some things that I'm practicing, all as a summary of what I believe about, well, everything. And so with that said, first, the conversation that started it all. So several months ago, One of my closest friends was visiting Denver, and uh, he is one with whom I have had so many amazing conversations. We can hang out for three, four, five hours, and our conversation flows, And, and this night was no different. And we were on my patio, which, by the way, is my favorite spot to spend time with friends in the entire, well, actually in the entire world. And uh, as we're sitting back there, our conversation wandered into uh, God, life, faith, 
and which, by the way, it's not odd for he and I to, to do this. We often speak about this, actually, um, because we don't necessarily agree with one another on multiple levels with regard to, uh, to our faith and our spirituality. But we are, because we're such good friends and we have so much respect for one another, we're able to listen and challenge, uh, learn from each other, grow from one another. And so as we're talking about this, he finally said to me, so what do you really actually believe? Like really deeply, deeply believe? Like what are you willing to die for? Or maybe, maybe I should say, what are you willing to live for? And what are you willing to hang on to as though your life depended on it? I mean, forget everything else. What actually matters? Like if, if what you believe isn't true, it would change the very complexion of the universe for you. And I looked at him and I said, well, that's easy. Love. And he started laughing. He's like, come on. I mean, what? No way. I mean, I'm talking about like the really big stuff, like what actually really matters. And I said it again, love. I really think that's it. Like uh, love. And of course, in our conversation, that, that was not like the end of the story or the end of conversation. Like, okay, well, you answered that question. Let's move on. It actually, in some ways, was like the beginning of the conversation. And so we came inside and grabbed another beer and went back outside and sat down for further conversation. Because while I knew the answer was love, while I knew that, we spent the next, I don't know, a couple of hours talking about it. And I've spent a lot of time contemplating uh, my response to him since that night, because I know the answer is love. I, I know it in my gut to be true, but why? And part of the reason is that when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love. I mean, that's what it all boils down to is love. Now, more specifically, he was asked by some religious leaders, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. And because he says love your neighbor or love others as yourself, some would say he's saying love God, love others, and love yourself. That was it for Jesus. That's what it boiled down to. As a matter of fact, he said this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the massive summary that you find in the Bible is loving God and loving others and loving yourself. Or another translation would say, on these things hang the law and the prophets, speaking of the scripture. So in other words, this is the foundation of everything. This is what it all boils down to. This is ultimately what matters. That love was it for Jesus. Love was enough for Jesus. And what's interesting is in my experience, many people, they seem to get a bit uncomfortable with this idea. They, they seem to get a bit like, well... I know that Jesus said love, but what about rules? I know that Jesus said love, but what about belief? I know that Jesus said love, but what about making sure that people know where they're going to spend eternity when they die? But for Jesus, like he boiled it down to love. As my friend and I sat together, I recall to, uh, a conversation that I had had with a pastor some years before, and he was talking to me about his concern over people who really seem to be losing what he referred to as like the fundamentals of the faith. And he said, you know, for them, it's all just love, love, love all the time. And he said it as a way of criticizing people. And I was sitting there listening to him. And I said to him, do you realize the irony of what you just said? Because for Jesus, 
it was <laughs> love, love, love all the time. That's how he summarized everything. But this idea of love, it frightens us. We, we don't know what to do with this simple idea that Jesus offered up. I, I learned this in a uh, pretty harsh way several years ago. I have a t-shirt that says, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. And every word on the t-shirt is crossed out except love. And so I posted a picture of that shirt on Instagram and the, the caption below it, I said, this sums it up for me. And I meant this sums it up for me as like a reference to Jesus's words, like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but people didn't, didn't see it that way. And there were some people, I, I, I recognize um, actually after I posted it, that I was speaking against the phrase, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, which so many people hang on to as though it's gospel truth, um, forgetting that it was actually Gandhi who coined the phrase. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, I am speaking against that phrase. And I'm also saying, like, this sums it up for me, love. This is, this is what Jesus seemed to be all about. And the vitriol and the anger that came through was, was stunning. It was the only time there was ever a comment posted on social media that was so piercing and mean that I, I had tears in my eyes when I read it because it was posted by somebody that I've known since I was like in middle school. Someone who uh, thought, maybe I thought that they knew me a little bit better. Um, I had to block people, mute people, delete comments. Um, and the biggest thing was that I had, I was like turning my back on God because I was saying it's all about love. And that this just opens the door for like all kinds of like permissiveness and license to do whatever you want. Um, it, it was so it really, really shocked me at how when Jesus says this, he seems to be pretty straightforward. And yet in his straightforwardness, it really seems to be a deeply threatening idea. And there are people who say things like, well, you know, if it's just love, love, love all the time, then we'll, people will do whatever they want. And it's not loving to not point out someone's sin. Of course, Someone who says it's not loving to not point out someone's sin, those people are not interested in having their sin pointed out, by the way. And I know this because I've had people say to me, you know, it's not loving to not point out someone's sin. And I say to them, you know what? You're right. Can we talk about your sin? And the answer is never like, yes, yes, let's do that. Let's talk about my sin. They're always a little bit like standoffish, like kind of deer in the headlights, like, oh no, I got called out. But, but this is the idea. If you just, if it's love, love, love all the time, then you're just going to overlook someone's like wrongdoing, their poor behavior. Um, and so it, it seems like we need more than love because love, well, that just creates too much freedom. And we know what people do with too much freedom. And, and this attitude, by the way, this has been true of poor religion for a long time. Poor religion, and I would say most of us, if we're honest, we prefer rules and regulations, and things we can measure. We prefer things that give us a great deal of certainty. We want to know um, when things are going well. We want to know when things are going poorly. We see this, by the way, in every area of life where we're always measuring and assessing so that we can be the ones who, really, beyond certainty, that we're in control. And that's the thing. 
when I consider, when I look at myself and look at the moments where I want to be in control and I want certainty, when I consider what keeps me from loving others and opening myself up to be loved, that's what it is, is it's my desire for certainty. It's my desire for control that I can't let someone be who they are. I need them to be something for me, for my own comfort, for my own security, for my own certainty, for my own control. And see, when, when this is what our faith becomes is like a list of rules and beliefs and preferred behaviors. In those moments, love actually begins to feel much more like a threat than freedom. Because for love to reign in me, I have to surrender. For love to reign in you, for love to reign in us, we have to surrender. Rather than be those who are in control of the whole thing, we have to say, yet, yeah, it's actually not even giving up control. It's just being honest and saying, I've never had control in the first place. And I would contend, this is central to the Christian tradition. This is central to the Christian life. Surrender is what it's about. It's opening ourselves up to be acted upon by the God of love. It's not striving. It's not earning. It's not doing. It's not believing. It's, it's, it's surrender. It's giving up. It's saying, okay, yep, uh, you call my bluff. I'm going to open myself up to love. And by the way, this is not easy. Some people would say, oh, well, you know, that's just such a, that's an easy pass. No, it's actually incredibly difficult because in every place in our world in the United States, we are trained to live and believe and think and act in a particular way. Just think about school for a moment. Let's leave religion on the side for a second. Think about school. In school, you are trained to behave, to learn, and to think and to produce in a certain way. And the way that our schools are set up, they're basically teaching you and training you to get ready for a job someday in a corporate world. And in the corporate world, in the for-profit world, in the business world, however you want to say it, there are all sorts of expectations and you are expected to produce. And if you do not produce, in other words, if you do not achieve, if you do not perform, if you do not behave in a particular way, you will get fired because you are not supporting or adding to the bottom line of the company. And so in every place of our life, I mean, you think about our family dynamics, our relationships, all of us carry a measure of brokenness. All of us place things on other people and we have those things placed on us. We pick them up and we figure out pretty quickly how we can go about our life so as to be loved by others. And the Christian tradition says, no, 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 it's none of that. It's actually surrendering. It's actually like open-handed uh, living. It's, it's admitting you don't have control and you actually don't need control because you are already loved. It's not about making yourselves worth loving. It's not about getting into the right space so God can forgive us and then welcome us into heaven someday down the road when we breathe our last. And by the way, this is the message that some people teach that God cannot stand to look at you because God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin and you are nothing but a lousy, stinking sinner. Um, I grew up in a world where I heard from the platform, I'm not kidding, and I quote, God hates you. This, this is the message that I heard. God hates you. 
In other words, it's not only that you're not worth loving, God would just as soon set you on fire and throw you into the abyss for eternity than look at you. And you better thank your lucky stars for Jesus because God can only stand to look at you through the blood, which means God's disposition as this really pissed off, angry, bloodthirsty deity never actually changes. He's just satiated by, by the blood of Jesus. He's still deep down inside hates you. This is how, this is how far off we've gotten from the message of Jesus who says, love God, love others. And so when we talk about like love being too free, yeah, when you live in a kind of world that we all live in between school and our jobs and our religion, it is incredibly free because the world so many of us live in isn't actually free. It's not freedom at all for ourselves. And it's also not freedom for God. And it's important to remember, love is always free. It is freely given and offers freedom to all people. This is, by the way, why I'm not a fan of the term unconditional love. I hear this all the time. Oh, this is unconditional love. Let me be really clear. If it has conditions, it is not love. If it has conditions, it is not love. But unconditional love is the way we describe not only ourselves, but the way we describe God's love. But it's not really, it's not really the way we think about God. Um, we say that, well, God is love and we can receive that love if we are willing to do this or that. So God's love is, is actually conditional. God's love is actually transactional. Um, it's because it's based on certain conditions and the conditions that it's based on are ultimately up to us to act on. And so if we don't act, then we don't get the love. And here's what I find fascinating about that. That in a very strange way puts you and me and us in control, doesn't it? So God, God is this like, you know, sort of transactional love and it's up to you to get it. Well, it just puts us back in control, which seems to be like the very thing that we want to do is we want to be those who call the shots. We don't want to be those who surrender. That's too difficult. But if we can be in control, we'll be in a great place. And this is what this idea of love with conditions does, is it places us in a spot where we are now in the driver's seat, which is often what we want. And so as my friend and I were talking about all of this, our conversation veered toward my favorite story, which by the way, I can always work into any conversation and podcast at any time because I love it and I, the depth of it is brilliant. There's actually one literary critic who reflecting on this story said, it's the greatest story that has ever been recorded. And I couldn't agree more. Now, you're, you're by this time going like, the story, which one is it? What is it? What story is it? Well, it's known as the prodigal son parable, which I cannot stand that title, by the way. I think it's a story about a father and two boys, but nonetheless, this is the prodigal son parable. And it is my favorite story of all time because for me, it expresses everything I believe to be true. It expresses all of the depth and breadth and beauty and goodness of love. And here's why I say that. By the way, if you're not familiar, familiar with the story, I'm going to tell it in parts and then add some attending commentary. Um, and, and by the way, there's eternal depth to this story. 
and I could probably do a whole season of podcasts on this one story. Um, but if you want to read a beautiful extended meditation on the prodigal son parable, uh, pick up the book Return of the Prodigal by Henry Nouwen or Henri Nouwen, as our French friends would say. Uh, it's him spending time with Rembrandt's painting, also titled Return of the Prodigal, and offering his reflections on it. It is unbelievably beautiful. But here's my side of the story. Here's my commentary on it. So it begins, by the way, in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is with a group of people that will be called the tax collectors. So think um, really wealthy, opulent crooks, uh, white collar criminals, we might say. And he's with the sinners, which is kind of a blanket term that the religious people gave to those who didn't keep the rules. They also blamed them for a lot of the social ills that were happening in the world, because if they had just kept the rules that they had pleased God, God would be pleased with them. And so obviously, if things are wrong in society, we can find a marginalized group to heap things on. Imagine what it would be like if religious people blamed non-religious people for bad things. Oh, I wonder if we could even imagine what that would be like. Nonetheless, Jesus is hanging out with that group of people. And some of the uber-religious, pious, holier-than-thou, self-righteous, who are intent on keeping the boundaries and the categories, were really turned off and perturbed that Jesus was hanging out with this group of people, the tax collectors and the sinners. And they're sitting there openly judging Jesus and judging them for being together. And so in the midst of this, Jesus turns toward them and tells three stories. The first story is about a shepherd searching for and finding a lost sheep. He talks about how there's a shepherd. He has a hundred sheep, 99 are in the fold. He loses one and he goes and looks for the one. And when he finds the one, there's like all sorts of rejoicing and celebration and everything else. And then he tells another story about a woman who loses a coin uh, in her house. And she sweeps everything and she looks everywhere and uh, she finds the coin and there's great celebration. And then he turns, after those first two stories about the sheep and the coin, he turns to the third about the father and two sons. And this is how he begins. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, here's the first detail. In that culture, you as a son had rights to everything the father owned, but it was divided between however many sons there were. The oldest son always got the largest share, and then younger sons would get a smaller portion of the share. And the only way that you would get the inheritance was when your father died, when your father kicked it. That's the only way it would come to you. So the idea of going to your dad and saying, I want my share of the inheritance and I want it now is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead now. <laughs> there, I have a friend who was telling this story in the context, uh, in the Middle East, in, in the context with um, a group of Muslim leaders. And he said, when he told this part of the story, several of them gasped because they knew exactly what it meant. Dad, I wish you were dead. And so the son says that, but here's what's interesting. It says the father, Jesus says, the father divided his property between them. So right away, what you figure out is both sons 
are complicit. Both sons agree to this idea. Moving on, Jesus continues. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is speaking to the self-righteous, pious, like hyper-observant religious people there who were, were Jewish. And so as he's speaking to these folks from the Jewish tradition, he's keenly aware that the filthiest, lowest, grossest animal is a pig. And so Jesus has this like brilliant way of saying like, this guy, he doesn't just hit bottom. He hits bottom and keeps going um, because now he's feeding pigs. And by the way, he's not just feeding pigs. He wants pig food for his own self. So in the minds of those who are hearing this at this point, they are absolutely, totally disgusted. And in the tradition of all poor religion, probably going, serves him right. There's almost would have been like a little bit of like glee and cheer. Like, yeah, this is what you get for dishonoring your father like this. Jesus continues. When he, the younger son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, hang on a second. The son doesn't really seem to be sorry in the least, does he? I mean, Jesus states what the motivation of the son is. He comes to his senses and is like, wait a second, I'm hungry And my dad's, like employees in my dad's company, they're eating and they have food to spare. I know where I can go get food. And it's that motivation that causes him to come up with this apology. Now, I learned um, growing up that if one is sincerely sorry, they name their wrong. And he just said, well, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's pretty broad. That's not like saying, dad, I realize it must have hurt when I told you I wish you were dead. So he, his whole thing is he's just hungry, he's tired of pigs, and he figures out a way to head home, not to mention he doesn't acknowledge the shame that he would have brought on his family in that culture. He doesn't acknowledge the absolute shame and embarrassment that he would have brought on his father. Um, what he's doing is it's actually a very brazen act by a defiant kid. It's kind of like, well, I've burned through all of this. I bet you I can go and still suck off my dad's uh, wealth by getting hired by him and getting some food from him. So this is, so often like we have the picture of the, the, the younger son returning home, like head drooped, so sorry and repentant. I'm not sure that's the case. And by the way, keep in mind, the religious people are listening to this. So they're waiting, just waiting, like he's gonna go home Oh, it's going to be so great. I cannot wait to see what the father does. Because in that culture and in that, that uh, framework, the son could have actually been killed by the father. Full rights for the father to do this. And so the son decides, 
I'm going to go and see my father. Jesus continues. But while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, and I hear those words and think, so so the father was keeping watch. While the son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion to him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This, my friends, is unconditional love. The father doesn't ask questions. The father doesn't say, where have you been? He doesn't say, did you spend all my money? He doesn't say, what did you spend my money on? He doesn't give him hoops to jump through. He doesn't even seem to care about the fact that his son's apologizing. He interrupts the apology. He doesn't even acknowledge that the son was speaking. He doesn't wait to see what the son wants. He doesn't realize and doesn't care that his son has been with pigs, which, by the way, now that the father is hugging the son and kissing the son and embracing the son who is unclean, now the father is unclean. And let's not forget, the religious people are the ones who are listening to all of this. Their minds would have been blown because like, oh, dad, now you're unclean? No, it's not what the father, the father runs and hugs and kisses and gushes and reinstates his boy to full sonship. This is what the robe and the ring and the sandals symbolize. The son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, I beg to differ. Bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals. This is my son. And what's interesting, we actually don't hear from the younger son for the rest of the story. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, We don't hear from the son. All we know is that there's a party. All we know is that the son is inside the party. Because what do you do when someone comes back to life? You absolutely, totally go bonkers and nuts and celebrate and party. This is a celebration of a son who was dead and is alive again, who was lost and has found. And I mean, how great would that have been? And as great as it would have been, let's be honest, you know, there would have been some, there would have been some people there and maybe, maybe it would be us. There'd be some of us there who would have questions, right? I mean, think about it. You're like, you're a neighbor to this guy and you catch wind that his son shows up and you're like, oh, what did the father do? Well, he threw him a party. And you're like, well, wait, wh-? he threw him a, a party after all that his son has done to him? I, I mean, this kid blows the inheritance and shows up smelling like pig crap and he's immediately back in the father's good graces. How naive is the father? I mean, has he lost his mind? Is he not aware of all the things people have said about him around town? Does he not know the disgrace the son has brought on the family's good name? And by the way, 
Word has it, and I'm not gossiping here, I'm just sharing this so that we can pray for him, that the son, well, apparently he's developed quite the habit. And so who's to say he won't abscond with more money when things settle down and the warm fuzzies wear off? I mean, hey, dad, you old man, (laughs) don't you know the chances are good this kid is just going to do this again? I mean, isn't he just taking advantage of your good grace and your love, dad? I mean... If we witness this, we might be moved, but then they're like common sense kicks in. And I believe if we said that, I believe in the moments that religious people say this, I believe that in the moments anyone at that party would have asked those questions. I think that in the moment the son felt the tender embrace of his father, I think when the son heard the cry of his father, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. Let's celebrate. I think when the tears from the father's eyes made their way down the father's cheeks through his beard onto the son's neck, I think in that very moment, the son might say, you think I want anything else than what I have right now? Do you really think I want what I had when I squandered my father's wealth? I mean, do you really think in that moment of wild love on display, the son wanted anything else? No, of course not. Of course not. And I think, by the way, if the father heard people like kind of raising some questions, he might say, oh, wait, wait, no, you don't understand you can't take advantage of my love and my grace because that's not how this thing works. You see, if I demand anything, it's not love. If I demand anything, it's not grace. If I withhold on the off chance that my son might take off again, then whatever it is I'm doing is not in fact love. And you know what? Here's the deal. Should my son take off again? Of course, of course, My heart will break again and my heart will ache for him. But, but if he takes off again, then he just might come home again. And that means I have the joy of running down the road to him once again while he's still far off and I get to hug him and kiss him and celebrate his return again because this, this is love. It's not conditional. It is selfless and it gives to the other freely and allows the other to live freely even if it costs us something. Because love and grace don't keep score. Love and grace don't keep score. They only openly give all the time. Now back to the story. Jesus says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he had come back near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. By the way, one little literary detail that I love is the older son says this son of yours to the father and the father in replying back to him says this brother of yours. But, but this, for me, this is the real power of the story. The only difference between the older son and the younger son, the only difference between the older son and the younger son is that the younger son trusted the love of the father enough to forego his agenda, enough to stop apologizing and receive whatever the father offered him. Not so with the older son. The older son demanded to be seen. He longed to be commended. He, he wanted to be appreciated for everything he has done. All these years I've been slaving for you. All these years I've never disobeyed your orders. Look at me, see me, praise me. It was like he had worked his whole life to make himself lovable. And this, this is the tragedy, is he had always been loved. He was always deeply loved and worth loving and lovable in the heart of his father. But for whatever reason, he couldn't see it. He couldn't accept it because he had worked way too hard to become someone worth loving. And by the way, there's so many, so many of us where we, we've done so many good things. We've worked really hard. We've accomplished so much. We, we have done a lot to make ourselves worth loving. And to have somebody say, yeah, but you see, none of that matters because there's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you more and nothing you can do to make me love you less. In some ways, that feels really disempowering. Like, you can't stop me from loving you. It doesn't matter what you do, good or bad. Well, but, but what about all the good things I've done? Yeah, yeah, those are great, but that's not why I love you. I love you because you're you. This is what's happening with the father and the, and the older son, and he can't take it. And this, for me, this sums it up. Because I believe every single person who has ever lived is totally and completely worthy of love. Every single person who has ever lived and ever will live is worth loving. You are worth loving. I am worth loving. Period. Full stop. And the question is whether we believe that to be true about ourselves. And so let's do a little exercise. As you listen right now, I want you as much as you can. I'm not sure what you're doing in this moment as you listen, but I want you to pay attention to your own head, your thoughts, pay attention to your heart, your body, your gut. And I want you to pay attention to those things. And maybe you need to take a second to take a few deep breaths in and out. And I want you to think about how you feel, what's happening in your head and your heart and your body and your gut as I speak these words. Ready? You are worth loving. You are worth loving. You 
are worth loving. You are worth loving. How do you feel when you hear those words? Does it make you uncomfortable? Do you summon all the things you've ever done wrong and say, yeah, but if you knew, do you think maybe, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been a pretty decent and generous person for most of my life. Do you think there is no way in hell I'm just worth it or worthy of love? Or, or maybe, maybe you're able to sit back and say, yeah. Yes, I am. God, I, I believe and help me in my unbelief. You see, I believe this is what we are invited to trust in the world. Love. We're invited to surrender to that. Because everyone, everyone deeply, deeply, deeply wants to believe that there is a love that will run down the road to greet us when we are on our way home. God is love, says St. John. And I wonder, do we trust that? You see, so often it seems we add to that or just get it totally wrong or completely wrong. We somehow believe like, well, God might hate you as I heard growing up or God hates this person or God hates that group. Hang on a second, hang on a second. God is love and Jesus is the face of God who is love. If it is not true of Jesus, it is not true of God. God is love. And poor religion has not clarified and amplified this reality. In many ways, it's distorted it. And in some cases, it's claimed it's wrong. The incomparable Robert Capon wrote these words. He said, St. Paul never said, while we were sinners, Christ died for us on the condition that after a reasonable length of time, we would become the kind of people no one would ever have to die for in the first place. But this is the story we seem to so often tell ourselves. Like, yeah, I know that God loves us so that I can become somebody who's worth loving. No, 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 no. God already loves you and there is nothing you can do about it. We have to reject the story that says we have to become something else or do something else to get this. This is the story that was told to so many of us. No, 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 no. We need to reject this story with every fiber of our being and say it out loud and announce it as dead wrong. We are loved you are loved. I am loved. And there isn't a damn thing we can do about it ever. The question is, will we surrender to it? Will we lay down our agenda? Will we cease our rehearsed apology? And will we receive the embrace and go into the party? Or will we stand outside filled with anger because of all the things we have done and worked for and all the obedience we have offered? Will we stand outside the party angry because we have done everything to earn the love and the grace only to find out in the end it means nothing? Will we stand outside saying, until you recognize all I have done, I am not going in? You see, one son surrendered to love. The other didn't. That sums up 
my beliefs about everything. We as human beings are invited to either surrender or we say, no, I'll do my own thing. But here's the good news. The story ends with the father outside the party. The story concludes with the father pleading with the older son, pleading with him to see, just like all of us, he too is worth loving, even if he hadn't have done all the stuff that he's so proud of. He too is worth loving, even if he hadn't squandered the father's wealth, or even if he had gone and squandered the father's wealth on wild living. Because what matters in this story is not the actions of the younger son or the actions of the older son. What is actually platformed in this story the whole way through from beginning to end is the love of the father. And this is the case, by the way, in the three stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 about the sheep and the coin and the son. It's all about the action of the one who's doing the looking. It's not about the action of the one who's been lost. I said at the very beginning, so often we kind of have this transactional kind of love with God and it's up to us to do something so that we can get into God's good graces. Luke 15 and the three stories Jesus tells absolutely and totally disagree with that. We don't have to do anything because love is not based on condition. There is no such thing as unconditional love because if it has conditions, if it has conditions, it's not love. We don't need to put the, the adjective unconditional in front of it. Just love, love, that's it. We don't have to do anything. It's already ours and yours. And the stories that Jesus tells asks the question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Or do you trust more in your religious beliefs that allow you to walk around with some security trusting you've somehow got the inside scoop? Or do you trust more in your virtue, whatever your particular favorite list of morals are? Do you trust more in those virtues over and above the virtue of others? Or do you trust in the work that you've done and the face that you've put on for others? You know, your accomplishments. I mean, those things are fine, but they're not why we are loved. My guess is you, like me, are a mix of the older brother and the younger brother. Somewhere between trusting, somewhere between still wanting to earn it, and then probably too, like this idea of like, man, I'm, I have so many things wrong with me. How, how could anyone love this? How could anyone love me? Maybe we're a mix of all of that. And I think this is the journey. And my hope is for me and for you is that we will become those who surrender more and more, that we will open ourselves up to be acted upon by the tender love that is God a little bit more each day. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for those I love the most. That's what I want for you. I hope it's what all of us want more and more all the time. And what I am learning is this. The degree to which I want this for myself is equal to the extent I am willing to seek it for others. Another way of saying it is this. If I'm not interested in this, I won't seek it for others. My love for others then, for me anyway, has become a litmus test of where I am in my own heart and in my own process. The way I love others indicates how willing I am to surrender to the beauty, truth, and goodness of the love of the divine. And this is proven 
incredibly helpful for me on my own journey. I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted to talk about some practices. I, I often reflect on how do I feel about, how do I treat others? And I'm not talking about those closest to us. I'm talking about the person who's uh, at, behind the counter at the grocery store. Am I looking at them? Am I seeing them? Am I uh, talking to them in a way that actually shows I genuinely care about you and believe you're worth loving? One of the things I've begun doing when I see people um, is I've started reminding myself that like, there was a moment when they were three, four, five years old, when they were just this adorable kid who probably said funny things and made adults laugh. They have a story uh, as a way of just seeing people. Because, and what I do then is I take steps back oftentimes and say, how am I relating to people? Because if I get into a place where I, people are an inconvenience, people bother me, people just get in my way, people just don't shut up, all that kind of things, well, that's a great litmus test of where I am in my own heart, in my own process. And for me, how much I am willing to give love uh, and forgiveness and grace to others. If I'm in short supply, it's more than likely I'm not receiving it. Um, and by the way, I say this too with regard to the super religious people who, for me at least, are really easy to hate. Um, when I look at the really hyper judgmental, the, the condemnatory ju- kind of people, um, I realize that these are, these are friends who have not learned of this love because you can't give something you haven't received. And what we have to remember is that Jesus looked at these kind of people and loved them. We learned this from the story of the rich young ruler, who when Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he's like, yeah, no, 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 I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. And Jesus looks at him, Mark tells us, and loves him. So we're not just called to receive this love, but we're called to to give it. And so when we come across someone who can't give love, what we begin to realize is like, this is somebody who's never received it. One of the, um, I would say, most troubling things I read uh, about our current sitting president was the line from a friend of his who said, all Donald Trump is, is a young boy who wants his father to embrace him and say, I love you. Oh, I mean, if that doesn't break your heart, your heart, this is all he is. So we have all people who get kind of worked up about him and like, whoa, 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 whoa. At the bottom, at the bottom is a young boy who just wants a father to say, I love you. I love you, Donald. I love you. And, and, and reminding myself of this when I look at people and I interact with people, not only the way that I treat people, because I'm capable of treating people terribly, and I have done that, um, but also the recognition that when we see people doing things that are hateful, that are terrible, these are people who have not received it. And, and, and we're called to love them too, because we're not just called to receive this, we're called to participate in it to the same extent as Jesus, to live love and to be love in flesh and bone for others. We're invited into this to the same extent that Jesus was. One of the other practices that I routinely do is I make the words that were spoken over Jesus at his baptism, for me, a breathing prayer. If you're not familiar with the story, when Jesus is baptized, he looks up and he sees heaven open and the spirit descends upon him like a dove. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And so I've made this my breathing prayer. When I inhale... 
I say, this is my son, or you are my son whom I love. And when I exhale, with you, I am well pleased. This is my daughter whom I love. With her, I am well pleased. I will do that breathing prayer, sometimes for 20 minutes, as a way of recentering myself, as a way of reminding myself what is ultimately true, what really ultimately matters. To be one who surrenders to this love and to be one who participates in this love to the same extent as Jesus, to be fully, as it were, image bearers. My friend Ryan, uh, his, I think is actually his website too, but his like catchphrase for everything is life is a gift. Love is the point. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's the full extent of my belief. Life is a gift. Love is the point. Love. What do you believe to be true about everything? Love. That is it. It is surrendering to it. It is enough for Jesus. It's good, good enough for me. And so that night on the patio, when my friend said to me, what do you really deeply believe? Like, what are you willing to die for? I mean, maybe I should say, what are you willing to live for and hang on to as though your life depended on it? I mean, forget everything else. What actually matters? Like, if it's not true, it would change the very complexion of the universe. My response several months ago was this. Well, that's easy. Love. And that's still my response. That's it. Love is what I believe. And my prayer for you, my friends, is that together we would each day surrender a little bit more to this overwhelming truth. We are worth loving. You are worth loving. I am worth loving. And that in surrendering to this truth, we would come to see that we are invited to participate in this love so that all might come to know they too are loved and there is nothing any of us can do about it. And that is it for today. And so until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.